looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by hosts... Patrick. And Dan. And tonight we are joined by our contributor... Micah. And we are joined by a special guest, Madge. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. So, Madge, you've been on Perfect Organism before, uh, and uh, I we believe this is your first time in, on uh, Shoulder of Orion, but people know you through Fields of Calantha who listen to the show, and they have definitely interacted with you before because you're a great poster there. But uh, you do so under a pseudonym. So if you've talked to Frank Poole in Fields of Calantha or Building Better Worlds, if you're a, a Perfect Organism listener, uh, he happens to be the person on the show tonight. So yeah, welcome, man. How are you doing? Hello, I'm great. I, I did have a Facebook with my real name, Majid, but yeah, I switched it to Frank Poole. Personal reasons, not a big deal. But yeah, if you're talking to Frank Poole, that's me. And um, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk about Rachel. Good to have you. Yeah. So this is our uh, probably the last thing people are going to hear from us be, before the uh, the year turns over. This is our last time in 2019, and how's everybody feeling? This was this was our year, you know, as a fandom. It's pretty crazy. Well, number one, we haven't been all together at least. Well, certainly we were there physically, but we're virtually all together for the first time since we were physically all together three weeks ago, or however long ago that was. So uh, it's it's a little surreal. It's it's pretty exciting though. It's been a really great year. Um, yeah, you guys know. Obviously, the last two episodes were the recording of our event, and uh, we talked about it a little bit, but we were just really really happy about how all of that went, and it was so great to meet so many of you guys and just be interacting, and really felt like you know we were doing the big Blade Runner themed event in downtown LA in November 2019, and so um, we want to. Of course, take another opportunity to thank all of you guys that showed up and those of you on Patreon who helped support it, et cetera. Um, we couldn't do it without you, and we were really excited planning it this whole year, and, and we're so happy with how it turned out. So we're really grateful to all you guys for helping us make that event be as, as good as it was. Um, and and uh, speaking of being thankful for people and the event, I, I want to give a special shout-out, I think we all do, um, to Mark from Arizona, who just is – it's just become somebody who we really treasure in this audience. He always writes in, he always calls in, he sends these wonderful things. And he was at the event, um, and I didn't get to meet him there. And he called in to point that out and to say uh, how much, you know, he wished we had wished to be at a time to, to hang out. Um, and so, Mark, this is an invitation. Next time we have an event, we are grabbing a drink together. We're going to talk. Um, and it was so great uh, having you there and having everybody there. And, uh, Dan, I think you had something to say to Mark, too, right? Yeah, you know, uh, it's funny because Mark writes in all the times, great guy, really intelligent. And, you know, he's a veteran like me and, and had, uh, you know, different uh, points of view on like PTSD and like lots of interesting stuff relating to Blade Runner and like why he connects with that world. And um, <laughs> I talked to this guy, Mark, at the event, dressed in a Deckard outfit for a while. And he was really nice and really intelligent and 
for whatever reason, because I guess I was probably running around like an idiot trying to make sure everything went fine for the event, I didn't connect the dots and figure out that that was Mark from Arizona. So, Mark, <laughs> it was really nice to meet you and really nice talking to you. I'm sorry I didn't realize who you were because I would have brought more <laughs> stuff up and I've read so many of your emails. But thank you so much for all your interest. Uh, your insight has been really great. Uh, I still haven't even finished reading all the stuff you've written in because I think every episode you like write in comments on Podbean and Podbean something like we kind of go on sporadically and, and uh, a little bit more rare, but I will go back through and uh, read and listen to all your stuff. And I do want to comment, but in the meantime, I just wanted to thank you for your support and for just being so involved. It's really, it's fans like you that really make a big difference and uh, make us really proud of what we do. And I want to say that even if um, th th there are things that we don't respond to sometimes, and there are things that we, you know, might take a while to get back to, but every time anybody writes in or interacts with us or sends something or sends a call, it like means the world to us. It is such an amazing moment. And, uh, and we do our best to keep up with it. And sometimes we do better than other times, but thank you so much for engaging with us. And it's not just Mark. It's obviously Peter from the Midwest, great friend of ours. It's all you guys. It's Madge. It's all these people out there who have become um, part of this extended family of Blade Runner fans over the last couple of years. I, I got to throw uh, I want to throw Clara in there because she just sent us three beautiful handmade hummingbird origami pins that are related to our audio drama Gethsemane because she's such a big fan of the audio drama that we put together and she's a jeweler and uh, she decided to make us a really intimate personal gift. I mean, I cried when I opened mine. I mean, honestly, it was so sweet. So Me too. Yeah. I wanted to go on the record and thank Clara from Australia very much for that gift. That was really thoughtful and really sweet. And then she's been on the show before and is a contributor as well. So thank you, Clara. And to me, part of what was so special about the event was that we got to meet so many of you people in person. And that was something that, uh, like, I'll just, I'll never forget about, seriously, for the rest of my life, I'll never forget about it. Actually, Mark in his call and said that that event was so special, it's something that he's going to tell his kid about. Um, and I totally feel like this is, this. it was the same thing for us. It was something where uh, it was a surreal moment where this thing became real, you know? Um, and, uh, and getting to, like, hear people's voices after all these write-ins and things was just something that was... Um, incredible. Hey, before we get into the episode, um, I want to give a really quick uh, shout out to our patrons who have been here with us through thick and thin, who are the reason that that event was able to happen, um, who are the reason we were able to interview some really amazing guests over the last year and a half or so, who are the reason we've been able to upgrade our audio equipment, who are the reason we've been able to advertise in some strategic ways for the first time. Um, you guys have been an absolute godsend to us, and uh, and we don't thank you enough. We try to, but but we but we we don't. Um, so I'm going to read out your names quickly, um, and I want to just and just say to everybody who's listening, who's not a patron, that um, we have really ramped up the amount of content that you can get as a patron this year, and we're really excited about it. It's actually become a whole separate work stream for us that we feel really energized by. Um, we've covered films from The Shining to Metropolis to uh, all of these so as, movies. That... As part of Frame Rate, right? Like that's our new show that we started for the patrons. And then yeah, exactly. we've, done, we've done a lot of cool film on there. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a whole separate a whole separate podcast that you can only get if you're a patron of the show. Um, and we're putting out four of them this month to give you an idea. Usually it's two per month. Right. Anyway, um, my point being that there's there's a lot of perks in addition to that even that you get. But maybe the most important thing you get is a direct stakeholdership in the future of this podcast. So if you want to see more events in the future, if you want to see us get you know more guests on here, if you want to see us be able to uh, – 
to bring you more exclusive content and to be to, to be the Blade Runner podcast that endures as a as a real um, centerpiece in this fandom is one of many amazing centerpieces. But as a centerpiece that has carved out a really nice niche over the last couple of years, please consider joining our Patreon program. You can do it for only two dollars a month and you get a ton of perks for it. If you can give more than that, it goes a huge way. But anything you can give um, makes you a part of our um, podcast team. And, uh, and it's something that will really transform the future of the show. So uh, we won't get into it, you know, any any more deeply than that. But if you go to uh, perfectorganism.com forward slash support or bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support, or you just go to Patreon um, and look us up there, we're under Perfect Organism because it's our, it's our sort of holding company for both of the shows. But uh, every bit of fundraising that you can give us goes a huge way, and we will do our absolute best to always deliver on that promise to use those funds in a really transparent and really effective way. And you'll see the changes hopefully over the coming years. Anyway, uh, without further ado, before we get into the episode, a final shout out for the year of 2019, the year our film takes place to our beloved patrons. We have Sethicus, Patrick Ayub, Zachary Rice, Darren Gold, Paul Goodfellow, Nathan Gribble, Brendan Lutmer, Nigel Carroll, Richie Ammons, Steve Appleman, Mike Dennis, David Benson, Tim Hazeldean, Ken S., Peter from the Midwest, Alexander Gates, Carlo Rosa, Rick Howard, Ali Egan, Noah Howard, Xander House, Dom, Stefan Bischoff, Graham Zirk, Craig Wright, and Mother 9000 herself, Clara, as well as Andy Ev. Thank you all so very much. This is not something that we could do without you. And, uh, Thank you, guys. And we really appreciate it. So let's get back to Rachel, shall we? Do you love me? I love you. You trust me. I trust you. Yes, let's get back to Rachel. So here we are again to record a part two to the Rachel discussion. But before we really get into that, so you have heard, Madge, us discuss Rachel, of course, myself believing that the character of Rachel is really essentially what the films become about and who she is and what she brings into the world and literally figuratively emotionally in many ways she's aids in the redemption of deckard and in some ways deckard aids in her redemption as well um not just yeah. as people but as human beings in, in a way and i'm curious how she resonates with you in a, in like the exact same way in that to me it's like rachel g- gives deckard something to believe in really because it's almost like he he has the engine and uh, for change, let's call it. And Roy gives him the key to start the engine, but Rachel is kind of like the fuel. She like she's what makes the whole movie work because she allows Deckard to change. Because I'm not really convinced Deckard cares enough about himself to really even enact like the change and really take the lesson from Roy. I feel like he takes that lesson from Roy, but then what? What's the thing directly after he's he's fearing for Rachel's life? He has something to protect, something to to go take Roy's advice and and take it into his own life and and go, you know, live for himself. And because of that, that's like what makes the movie satisfying to me. The movie is it 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 doesn't do all the work for you, as we know. Blade Runner is like something like we all take what we take from it, and it's kind of uh, an intimate experience, but. Um, and there's so much ambiguity in it, but when, when he wakes up Rachel and leaves with her, it's like this huge, um, 
resolution of of like all the conflict that's been happening and it's just so like satisfying it's like it's like in in music or anything really it's like there's always a tension and a release and like you know with certain music it can the the tension can be drawn out for minutes for a long time and then finally release or it can happen on like a second to second basis it's like music just like language the way we need to like emphasize every other syllable or every third syllable like it has to have this kind of ebb and flow to it and the movie has that too and like in a good piece of music you need to resolve the melody you need to like oh this this uh part of the song makes me feel apprehensive this part makes me and then like at the end you bring it all home and like that's what rachel does for deckard just what she does for the movie it's like and as, as i understand it it's like that was kind of from the inception that's from like Hampton Fancher's first script was like, that was kind of the kernel that made it through the whole movie. And I think that's why it still rings true. It made it through all those iterations and stuff. So um, to me, she's kind of like the linchpin of the whole movie. So what about the rest of you? Like, how are you? I know it's been a while. We released the first uh, or part one of this, this uh, discussion on Rachel over two months ago. So it's been a while since we have been in this space. Have you guys been able to process that at all? Um, yeah, I'll jump in real quick only because I was watching the film, uh, last night. So I was introducing a new friend to Blade Runner who's never seen it. And we watched the first half and then we're going to finish the other half tonight. But, um, I think we ended right after, um, Decker kind of breaks Rachel's world open, telling her that she's not real and, you know, that her man, you know, et cetera, that, that whole scene. And, you know, it, we've talked a lot about Rachel sort of being, the center, well, Magister did as well, but you know, we mentioned it many times before that it feels a lot like Rachel is the sort of center of gravity of the film. And a lot of the arc of the other characters sort of is seen, it's like Rachel is the most intimate and tragic portrayal of that whole concept of what it means to be a human and what it means to know that you're real and know that your memories are real, you know, and, and obviously Roy, for example, and Rachel don't have any interaction or connection, but because Deckard is sort of the cipher that we see everything through and he's connected to all the characters. Um, I think, you know, by, by association, Rachel still touches kind of all the characters in the story. And, um, last night was the first time I feel like I realized watching that scene that I was like, Oh, wow. Not only is Rachel sort of the most important character in this story and she affects uh, Deckard's changes and his arc so much, but I feel for the first time in watching the movie, you know, 100 plus times, whatever, I felt like that scene was like the focal point of the film. I felt like within Rachel Deckard, like that scene was the most important scene in the film. Um, And that's coming from someone who enjoys the second half of the film a lot more. I mean, if I had a favorite, the second half is my favorite, you know, just the, the, the chasing with Roy, that third act is like the most beautiful third act in a, in a play that I've ever seen. Um, and I just, I look forward to that part so much. And of course I love the whole film, but that scene really, really struck me this last time that I was watching it. Um, and it's just that, that break that you see in Sean Young's face when that tear rolls down her cheek and, even just drunk asshole Deckard 
even feel some sympathy for for this thing where he goes, you know, never mind. You're you know, go home. You're you're not a replicant. Um, yeah, and it just you know really went straight to my heart. I really um, am convinced that that is like to me the pivotal scene in the film. So that that was a new thought that I hadn't really had before in, in so many in so many words. So I just want to throw that out there. Well, it's the first scene with like outward uh overt emotion in it and it's like and you know you you see this like childlike sadness in her eyes like you just told her santa claus isn't real and it's like i I think it's so incredibly relatable in a movie that a lot of people ding for being kind of cold and inaccessible or something or like you know people having a hard time identifying with characters or whatever but i i when i saw it in um when i got to see it in a theater recently I, I could like feel the whole audience just be glued in that moment. And when I got to show it to my girlfriend, she totally responded to that scene. And like, she, um, yeah, she's like the emotional center of the, of the whole film. I think that's my favorite scene in, in that, in the film. And, um, I've lately been thinking a little bit, um, especially after the last time I watched it about Rachel's journey to Deckard's apartment and what she must be thinking going there with all the pictures, how she wants to storm in and kind of prove him wrong. But I wonder, and I've been thinking about this, like if a little bit of her knows that she's a replicant. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but for me, that that moment when she's perfectly still and just the one tear comes down, it's so heartbreaking because to me, I feel like it's he just confirmed something that she really, really, really didn't want to be true. And that is even a little bit more devastating, I think. Like, I, I I, do think that she was totally blindsided by this. But part of me feels like maybe when she was coming over there with all her pictures and stuff, she was going to prove herself. And he just confirmed something that a little piece of her really might have already known. I don't know. I've been thinking about that a little bit. And I think that's the way uh, things like this happen, right? Like... If you think back in your life, I mean, I had a moment in relatively recently that was a little bit Rachel-esque in some ways, uh, and I kind of had a premonition about it a little bit. Like I kind of had I had felt something and then I had kind of put it put it back down again and kind of felt something and put it back down again. I think a lot of the time, you know, whether you're being diagnosed with a disease, which is not what's going on with me, I'm not alluding to that, <laughs> or, or you know, you find out some, some bad news about a family member or something. I, I think a lot of the time we kind of we pick up on something potentially being about to happen. And then we kind of stuff it back down again. And I do get a sense that because because Deckard doesn't have to push very hard, right? Like when Rachel shows up, uh, it, it, t- it takes very little effort to disprove some of her memories or, or to disprove their origin. Um, and she doesn't push back very much. And, and I think it's because in some way, you know, if you think things through, you don't remember the smell of that moment, but you remember the visuals of it. Or you don't remember what the sound was outside, but you remember some of it. You know, I, I it makes me think a lot about... Um, the way memory works, which is something that we've brought up probably too many times in this podcast at this point, but it's been a little while. Um, have you guys ever heard of, uh, oh, this is, there's actually like a cognitive science term for it that uh, I'm not going to remember. And like the one cognitive behavioral scientist who listens to this is going to write in angry <laughs> about it. I hope they do. It's, it's, but it's literally an implanted memory. So it's very, very yeah. easy yeah, and, and there's 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 clinical trials on this that are kind of controversial, but they're actually successful. You can take somebody and tell them something happened when they were a child, um, and they will push back on it. They'll be like, that's not true. Like, what are you talking about? And then you can schedule a follow-up appointment with them 
a couple of weeks later and be like, oh, hey, the reason you don't remember it might have been because of this. And you can put a little bit of doubt in there. And then you could be like, it's okay. And you, and you set it up under the conditions of this is a memory trial, just so you know. Like, so, so you're participating willingly in a scientific experiment where we're testing just you know human memory and the fallibility of memory. So, so you know what's going on going into it to a degree. Um, and a lot of the time, by the third appointment, they not only come in with the memory, they come in uh, with like a complete narrative around it. So I actually heard one of these recently where this woman was told that she had gotten uh, into a fight when she was a teenager and was picked up by the police and held overnight in jail. And the first time she's listening to it, she's like, that that never happened. What are you, what are you talking about? The second time she goes, well, you know, maybe this is like a week later. She's like, maybe maybe it happened, but, um, you know, I blocked it out because it was traumatic or something. And then the third time she shows up, she's like, you know what? Becky was an asshole and she deserved it. And I don't apologize for that whatsoever. <laughs> and I don't care what wow. anybody tells you. I would go to jail again to beat Becky up a second time. And then they tell her that this was an implanted memory that didn't actually happen. Um, and she defends the memory. She says, that's not true. I punched Becky in the face. And they're like, you didn't even know a Becky when you were a child that we know of, right? And, and then it falls apart and you have this moment of complete deflation. And I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is because I think that uh, we tell ourselves these stories about ourselves over and over and over again. We reinforce this notion of who we are every time we wake up and every time we go to sleep, right? And we become so confident that we know everything about ourselves. But if we really knew everything about ourselves, we wouldn't be telling ourselves those same memories over and over again. We wouldn't be thinking about it when we went to sleep at night. There's some part of us, I think, that is always worried that we don't actually know the truth. There's some part of us that's always a little worried that there's something that we're not really aware of going on or that but, there's less we have control of. But I don't think that everybody has goes to bed or wakes up telling telling ourselves about this and that i mean some of us we just know it and we don't have to replay it maybe there's for lack of better terms people who are more fragile who have to remind themselves of who they are day in and day out i'm not one of those people i know who i am uh without having to replay memories i think it's a little generalized what you're saying i i, I mean I, I understand what your point is but i don't like there's been some profound things that have happened to me that i don't think of at all and, and, because I know they're true and I don't have to replay them. Now I might tell someone if they're asking me about my past, but I don't ever replay them. Like, oh, this is you don't think idea. about them. You, you, no. you don't think about those moments in your life. No, uh, the moments in you my just life. Just ignore that, them. No, I don't ignore them. I don't. Um, you remember them, right? I don't. That's remember why they stick them. as memories for you. Yeah, but I don't remember them on a daily. I don't. I don't wake up thinking, oh, this about this memory here because this is who I am. I don't. The way you're describing how the way you're describing this sounds like we're lying to ourselves every morning and we're twisting the truth. Now I know it's probably not your intent, but the way that I just don't know. Now maybe some people do that. Some people who are traumatized. Some people who maybe they can't. They hold on to unforgiveness. I don't know. I'm, I don't also don't want to generalize, but I don't because I've had some pretty profound things happen to me in my life that I don't ever think about on a daily basis, unless someone asks me about them. And I don't need right. to think about them to remind myself of who I am. Right. Um, Patrick, is, sorry, Dan, go ahead. I, I'll hand it off to you. Uh, yeah, sorry, otherwise I'll forget this thought, but thank you. Um, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, Jamie. I think what I was thinking of listening to both of you is about, and I'm no cognitive scientist, obviously, so I'll, I'll probably won't use the right nomenclature, but in terms of how memory recall works, 
and what's actually happening when you do take the time to say, like, let's say you're telling me a story, Jamie, right, from your childhood. So maybe it's not something you think about all the time. But to tell me the story, you have to actually, you know, physically recall, dig into your brain, physically recall the memory. I don't think that that all that data sits in your brain as one like neat little package that you can just pull up, right? Every time you think about it and recall a memory, you're this is how the brain works. The brain has to reconstruct that memory. That's why as you get older and your brain changes and plasticity changes and all that, um, memories start to fail. And certain details that someone else has proof of happen one way, a car was red instead of blue, you know, things like that. Someone else who was there can jump in and be like, no, no, that wasn't your mom. That was your aunt. That was your aunt that said that or something like that. And you can be like, oh yeah. But in that moment, when you were recalling that memory, that that, you know, 5,000th time or whatever, one of the details changed because those things are malleable and flexible. And I, and I think that, um, cause we don't have a recorder in our head. Um, and of course the extreme example is that when you get dementia or Alzheimer's, those memories completely start to fall apart. And I don't even know scientifically, biologically, whether those things are retrievable. Like if you could, let's say they came up with a cure, for example, for someone who's had Alzheimer's for 10 years, I don't even know if you can go back after being cured, if that was possible and retrieve those memories. So I think what I was getting from the conversation is that, um, or what it made me think about is how loose memories can actually be depending on what you go through and how old you are. And, and a lot of, a lot of that kind of circumstance. And I agree with that. I'm going to, I want to let Madge uh, say, I mean, I have a, I think it, it really just depends on what memory you're talking about. I've had less consequential memories in my life. I've gotten wrong before, but I've also had people say to me, well, your story is the same way. Every time you tell it, your story never changes. Every time you tell it, I've had people say that to me over and over and over, um, about when I talk about certain things in my life. So I think that, I think it really depends. I, I just, I, I want to be careful of like, Obviously, we're talking about Rachel, and that's the context of this conversation. But I think there's a danger in throwing this over to us as people, like, because then what do we believe? What is true? What is true? Well, I, I, let, let, me, let me jump in and imagine. I, I promise you we're going to get to you in one, in one second. But just just because I think my, my words are being twisted a little bit. Um, I'm not saying I go to bed with a checklist every night where I'm like, I am this, I am that, I am that. But Jamie, the simple act of you saying people tell you every time you tell the story, you tell it the same way is proving my point, which is that you're telling stories about yourself. You're you're reiterating things about yourself. And it doesn't have to be a conscious process, right? Like for there are memories that I have, like for example, that are triggered by sensory experiences. So every time I smell honey, like a, a certain type of plant, I have this, and I don't think about it, I don't try to, but I remember being a kid playing in the apple blossom orchards at my grandmother's house. And it just hits me every single time. Um, and I'm not like sitting there thinking I am a person who remembers the apple orchards, you know, I'm thinking like I, I, I'm reinforcing this identity of who I actually am, this thing that I, I don't necessarily have control over, but this thing that has become the agglomerated total experience of, of who I consider myself to be as a person. Um, there, are, there are things from my life that I don't think about very much, um, not because they're painful or anything, but just because they're just things that are in my life that I don't need to remind myself of. Um, but sometimes they will come out involuntarily. And I will realize because of that, that they're more deeply embedded in who I am than I even realized. What I'm saying is that, Dan, you're absolutely right about the plasticity of the brain. Because we don't have an objective video recording device going all the time, to remember something, we have to retell it to ourselves. It's that That's the biological process we go through. Whether or not you're thinking about doing that, it doesn't matter. 
But to remember something, you have to tell yourself a narrative of how you how you perceived it. Um, and if you don't do that periodically throughout your life, again, not like by on purpose, but if it doesn't happen in your sleep or, you know, in whatever way, then you actually lose the memories. That That's that's the way that our minds work. Um, and so I, I guess the reason I went into this whole thing and I'll kick it off the match is because when I see that happening to Rachel in that scene, which I agree is an extraordinarily powerful moment in the film, um, the look of uh, awareness in her eyes is what gets me every time. The look that this was something that she saw, as Micah was saying, that she kind of saw coming. Um, and I think that uh, when I say that sometimes we feel like there's harbingers of the future that happen before we see a traumatic event or something, I think it's because we remember more than we are aware we remember. I think it's because our brains are aware of a shitload more than we think they are. Um, and as we get proximity to events or to moments of cataclysm or to the huge changes in our lives, I think we sense it before we realize we're sensing it. Um, and I think it's such a testament to Sean Young's performance that she communicates that, that she communicates this very comparatively understated reaction to something that is, you know, incredibly traumatic. Uh, but you, there's almost the sense of, uh, of, a, of a release in it, you know, of a release from doubt. It's like she, it, she got this terrible, terrible news, but it's also the truth. Right. And that's incredibly hard to stomach. Mash, go on. um i do think i see i think i see what you're saying about like uh, that we do tell ourselves stories even when we tell our stories back to ourselves what we take from those experiences are stories we tell ourselves and that's how we i guess maybe like protect our self-image which is like the tough thing which is when you know that that's the struggle people have when you do something and you look back and you say um it's the same reason it's tough to confront people about prejudice, prejudice they might have, things like that. That affects people's self-image. Like that means if that were true, that would mean I'm a bad person. I'm not a bad person. So it must, I must have done it in a different way, you know, stuff like that. It's like, you know, even like something like, like a, like a breakup, like when, like once when I got broken up with, when I was like early twenties, I, you know, I would, I would, you know, you replay these things in, in your mind and you're like, well, I did this and I said that and I said that. And then like a year later, you can run the same experience in your head and you, and you see yourself in a totally different light. And you're like, wow, like there's, it's really the story I'm telling myself. So I, I told, I think I totally understand what you're saying. And as far as memories being, uh, unreliable, I had this one story, one of my favorite stories to tell in the world was when I was like 12 or 13. Um, I'll, I'll get through this quick. So I got chased by a dog, long story short. I got chased by like a vicious dog and it almost, it, it surely would have torn my leg off. I was a really like skinny kid. This was a really muscular dog. It was gaining on me. I was at my cousin's house running and, um, and the pivotal moment of that of that whole thing is that I, I ran up the porch where uh, we we're at my cousin's house and I run across the deck and I swing open the slide door. The the uh, the screen door was closed, was already uh, opened. So all I had to do is open the glass sliding door and shut it. And it was so close that when I shut the door, it actually the dog hit his nose on the glass and then I collapsed and whatever. So I love telling that story because it's a lot of fun. And then I'm telling the story one day in front of my dad 
And he goes, that's not what happened. I said, what are you talking about? Because I'm like, if I even had to open the the slot, the the screen door, it would have been half a second too late and I would have been mauled. But my dad's like, no, I opened the door for you. You didn't, you know, so then like, and then suddenly I was like, oh my God, he's right. I've been telling this story for like 10 years now and I've been wrong the whole time. So it's like, I, I, I try to keep that in mind a little bit and just be like, how am I? You know what? What am I? What what allowances am I giving myself to to feel better about you know this thing that happened to me or or what have you? It's like you know it, it's tough to stay objective. I think it's actually impossible as a human, but um, but yeah, and and I was and if I can go on um about Rachel in that scene, last time I watched it, I thought like how how especially cruel of Tyrell to do it to her to also not just gift her with these memories that give her a self image and I guess become by his words easier to control, but also he grants her this status of like basically being rich, being in like the kingdom of heaven. She's at the top of the pyramid and she has the best clothes and not a single strand of hair is out of place. And she's, you know, she's gorgeous and whatever. And, you know, by, and then eventually uh, once she becomes self-aware, he um, assumedly calls the police on her and says, you got to go around this replicant up. And it's like, you, you, you had everything, but no, 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 you're actually nothing. And it's like, and even um, to jump back to when she first met Deckard before, when she was still under the illusion, she, she, uh, she kind of turns his nose up. She's very, she's wholly unimpressed with Deckard. She's, she's ready to ask him, like, have you made mistakes? Like, you know, she, she doesn't, I don't think she, she thinks that much of him, but then she, she has to read like everything to me. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. And I, and I love how, um, even in that moment when she's still on top, she's like giving Deckard shit. Like, like, are you asking me if I'm a replicant or if I'm a lesbian? Like that sort of whole back and forth. She has such confidence in her. And I really liked how you put it, Madge, about how it, it's almost more cruel. I mean, I, I think it is more cruel for her to just have be living a life that she thought was this full life and it's, it's ripped away from her in that moment. And going back to what you said about the, um, what we were talking about with the, her having a little bit of an inclination of what was about to happen. I think that her reaction is governed by that thought. I mean, it comes across like that to me, like there's, she doesn't throw her hands up and scream and run out of the room or anything like that is, that is devastating news to get. Like, how do you, how does one react to that? So, just the fact that she she is motionless and and you can just it's almost like you can see her soul breaking in that one tear i just i just find that so powerful and um yeah kind of lost my train of thought well but but what i think is important about that is that you, you see the soul that you see this fabricated soul breaking like you, you and 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 of course like magic what you were saying with her appearance and everything it, it begins to become more who she actually was right she literally goes on to like let her hair down she dresses different. She because she speaks differently. She carries yeah. herself differently. She becomes liberated by by this news. But it takes it takes a little obviously while to get there. I think. But there's a huge shift in her character after that. Clearly. It's interesting. Like uh, now that has me thinking about how many choices: the perfect hair, nothing out of place, the red lips, the outfits, everything that she was wearing, down to the way that she would walk in and out of the room. How much of that was really like? I, I feel like she probably thought it was her choice, but I wonder how much of it really was her choice to dress that way, talk that way, act that way, walk that way. And then when we see her 
literally taking her hair down, how beautiful is it to see her then make that choice to do that? Like, I, I know that it's, it's kind of a, um, a talked about thing that she takes her hair down and it goes from being perfectly straightened and slicked down to like this beautiful curly, like obviously not hairsprayed mop of hair. And like, that's kind of funny. And they had to really work really hard to get that shot. I know, but, um, I just, I love watching that. That's one, another, one of my favorite sequences in the film. And I just love that after she finds this huge truth about herself and it's devastating to her, she then starts making little choices to show who she really is and to allow that to be seen by Deckard and um, through Deckard, the audience. So I, I just, I just love those little things where you get to see like, this is actually Rachel. Like this is Rachel's choice to do this. She's not with Tyrell. She's not being watched by anything. Like this is her. She's choosing to take her hair down and, and not wear lipstick. And it's beautiful. And the costuming, like every, everything she, she's wearing before that she's bound. She's totally like wrapped up and like her coat is closed. It's zipped shut. And her, her dresses are all very like, you know, uh, I would say form fitting, but they're also like exaggerated with the shoulders and everything. But like when she takes her hair down and what you see her wearing essentially for the rest of her scenes is like this really loose, flowy, breathable sh- blouse and like, the most comfortable outfit. Ever. Yes. The outfit I'm wearing right now. I yeah. <laughs> I would totally wear that. <laughs> Sorry, so Jamie, comfortable. go ahead. No, uh, well, I, the reverse of that might be the shift in power when Deckard meets Rachel He's intimidated by her. She's not, she's a very powerful figure. And then when everything happens and it's revealed that she isn't who she thinks she is, she loses that power. She loses that, that sense of, and even though that wasn't real, I still think there was a loss there because I think part of her allure as a character, when we meet her is her power is her dominance is she's not intimidated by Deckard. And then when that breaks, She's completely intimidated by Deckard and afraid of him. And I don't know if I, those moments that you were talking about, Micah, where, where she's at the piano, I agree. I think that those are really beautiful moments. And I think she's sort of in, in the place of discovery. What does my hair do? What do I look like? Who am I? She's playing the piano and she doesn't even know where that's coming from. She's not sure if it's Tyrell or if it's her or, or anything. So it's this, it's in one way, it's this, for me, it's this a bit of a death of and loss of power that Rachel has um, because then she becomes, she just becomes this different creature and she probably should because she needs to find out who she is and find out, well, what do I like? How do I, how, how do I like to wear my hair? What kind of clothes do I like to wear? All of those things I think are really, really important. But I also think that she becomes, she goes from, in some ways, I I don't know She's how. A, I feel. Well, she comes she she comes from she turns from powerful woman to damsel in some ways, and I don't mean that completely literally, but I, I, for me, there's a little bit of a, a sadness there that I, I like the Rachel that we met. I think she was powerful. I think she she was intimidating to men, uh, certainly Deckard, and then the Rachel that came from that w- then was bullied, then was sort of this puddle. And that's not a bad thing at all. I think that's what you have. What happens when you're discovering? But I don't think it's just this. I don't know. It's not a black or white thing for me. Well, she's well, I like. I, I, I think. Oh, 
I'll just, I just <laughs> want to say we, really quickly. We, sorry, you go. Okay, we'll go. You, you first, Mike. I'll just do one quick sentence. I, I agree with you, Jamie. I do think it's a loss. And I think that she is in that place of devastation. But from that place of devastation, I find it beautiful and also very interesting to see her totally. making those tests. Yeah, like totally. to, to being curious about herself. I wonder if it's me. Like I remember, I remember lessons, but maybe it was Tyrell's niece. That's what I wanted to add there. Totally. And I think that we we stay with her. She doesn't lose us in. She doesn't become pathetic in any way because she's still pragmatic. She's asking questions. What if I go north? She wants to keep living. She's asking. Um, uh, you know, she even just uh, just being so accepting, not being in this place of like, I don't know what to believe, just saying like, I am the business, like, this is it, this is the new chapter. And like, and she's questioning, she's really the only one, maybe the only one in the film who questions herself, the nature of reality, and like, and gives us those questions to chew on in a sci-fi um, context where like Roy's question that he poses to us, what are you doing with your life? I, or you know what is what is your life going to mean? But Rachel's, uh, you know, question is existential. It's like, what is your life? You know, if you if you found out that you have only existed for five minutes and all your memories don't are are, are fake, uh, you know, does it matter? Do you care? Like, who are you I, then? Yeah, who are you? Exactly. Well, she Can upends everything. Yeah. She upends everything with one question she asks Deckard in that apartment. Have you ever taken that test yourself? That one question calls in everything to question. Like, is Deckard a human? Is anybody a human? Could that could LA at that time be all replicant people? Could they be policed by replicant people? That's all up for speculation. We don't know. And she asked that question. Yeah, totally. It, the music cue is very appropriate for that. One of you know, one of only a few times where really they took Vangelis' music to like really accentuate a specific moment in a scene as opposed to a general atmosphere. Um, the whole time you were talking, great points by everybody, but uh, the whole point time you were talking, Jamie, I was thinking, um, and I'm not that familiar with the mythology, so I don't know if the like power dynamic is proper, but um, I was thinking of a phoenix, you know, like it's like she is completely burned to a crisp and has to like rise from her ashes. And she is like a newborn in some ways and is sort of like rediscovering her power, rediscovering what it means to be a woman, to be a human, to be a real person to her mind, but not the person that she had been built and implanted to believe that she was. And so, you know, it's a short movie for the monumental things philosophically that it brings up. And so we only get to see a small condensed portion of that sort of rebirth of Rachel. Um, but it's really powerful, especially because her destruction is so heartbreaking, especially her realization of her humanity and her identity just vanishing in front of her eyes. Yeah, I, I think the thing that I, I I wrestle with, and it's because there's two things going on. I think Rachel's discovery, her self-discovery, is wholly important. It's necessary. She needs to go through it. But I also, we like Micah, you said there is a little. We were talking about the loss, but I to, at the same time, I not, I don't know. I prefer the confident Rachel I meet, not the baggage that made that confident Rachel. 
I don't I don't prefer that Tyrell manipulated her to being that person, but I prefer that person because I, I feel like she went into the, not that she went into this. I, I don't know. I battle this. So, she, so now she's falling apart because she needs to, because we all go through that. Even as people, there's things that we discover. There's truths that are revealed. We have to reassess. We have to find out who we are. That's a part of the human nature. Rachel was going through that. It was making her more human. I think it's really important at the same time. She was also the way she's depicted becomes a little bit more the kind of quiet damsel a little bit. And I don't, I don't prefer that, Rachel. I, I think, and the and the reaction we get when people share pictures of Rachel, for the most part, is the Rachel Deckard meets. I think that there's a power in her. There's a there's something that she wields that speaks to us. Where she's a little bit like Princess Leia. She's like, she's not going to take anything from you. What she's going to like throw everything back at you. You're not in control here. Which is what essentially she was doing with Deckard. Um, just last few points. I, what I think is interesting about Rachel, um, there's this trifecta happening with Rachel, Deckard, and Roy, where Roy is this, in many ways, sympathetic person, um, but he's a replicant who cares. Uh, Deckard doesn't care at all. And Rachel's sort of, everything she cared about was taken from her. So you have all of these three people or whatever dealing with different aspects of humanity um, and the one human or the one non-human who's acting the most human is Roy. And I just feel like, but Deckard and Rachel are different parts of him um, or, or, or different parts of, of the experience of being human, which I think was interesting. Another part of, of that scene where she goes to uh, Deckard's apartment. And this is something that I, I throw back because one of my favorite all-time films is Vertigo. There's a scene in Vertigo where the character of Judy is in her apartment and Jimmy Stewart's character is over there and she's showing her pictures of her with her mother and he's doubting that. And it's this it's this really, really interesting thing, this dynamic that's happening between these these characters, these really profound characters um, being told you're not who you think you are. I don't think who you think you are. And that's obviously up for discussion. They're very different films, but they've got some very dynamic similarities there. But that's one of the reasons why I love that. I love that scene between Rachel, uh, between Rachel and Roy. It's, it's, I don't know if it was an intentional. I don't know if it was an intentional throwback to Vertigo, but they're very, very similar scenes. And the characters of Judy and Rachel are experiencing very, very similar things. Yeah, I mean... I can understand that, you know, you have your favorite sort of depiction and moment in Rachel's character and, and you like that sort of confident Rachel at the beginning. But I would say, to me, isn't the confused, um, struggling to figure it out, Rachel, so much more re relatable? I mean, in general, as humans, how, how much of our lives do we walk through being super confident and like, go get her? But like, we all have those moments. But how many of those moments do we remember in our lives where we were, we felt lost, we felt confused, someone passed away, or, or you know, you used to go to church, now you don't go to church anymore. Like all these big things just sort of vanish, and you have to reevaluate what your life means. And while I was thinking of that, it made me think of um, 
again, we, we don't want to go into the love scene because we've discussed it in several other episodes, but um, I think leading into the love scene, um, I think a quintessential example of Rachel's confusion and real-time processing of what has been happening is when Deckard kisses her. When Deckard kisses her and he pulls away and he's sort of trying to gauge did she like that? Did she not like that? You know, is she down? What is happening? And Rachel's look is so Sean Young's look is so complex because it's kind of like I can see oh, this may be something that's never happened to her before, first of all. And of course, like a kiss, generally speaking, is like a pleasurable thing as as in terms of experiences as they go. But you can see all the machinations of like, do I like this because I have done it before or because I, I have memories of someone else that's done it? It's just so confusing. And you can see her, you know, physically walk out of the room and try and escape because there's so much going on that it's it's really overpowering, you know? And I think that, that particular moment at the beginning of the love scene, um, is a very good example of sort of this state of confusion and state of loss of identity that Rachel is kind of living through the, the mid, mid to end of the movie. Uh, let me just and, say this one thing and I'll, and I'll, and I'll pass it to you, Patrick, or, or whatever. It. Um, I think that there's two things for me, in terms of relatability, absolutely. Yes, everything she's going through is relatable. And I think my um, uh, the, the difficulty I'm having is what, in terms of what the audience sees, Rachel becomes a little bit softer. She becomes a little bit more typical woman, a little bit quieter, a little bit uh, less of a presence. Not that she's less of a presence. I'm not saying that at all because it's not true. But that's the thing that I've, that's on one way. Yes, she's more relatable, but I, at the same time, her power has been taken from her. Um, so I, I don't have an answer for that. I'm just that's my reply. But I would say in, in terms of um, like looking at it, like because, Jamie, I feel like you're kind of getting at like a gender dynamics thing um, with, with the fact that she becomes kind of softer, becomes more kind of what you would expect of like a damsel in distress kind of a thing. Um, but I, I, th I think that the more, from a gender standpoint, problematic portrayal is the first one because it's actually a lot. She's she's being used by men as a as a tool. She's literally being used as a weapon by men to to get things and to have a certain image portrayed. Um, she's controlled like a zombie by them. Like I, I well, mean, all literally, those things that's are true. Is, right? I absolutely agree. And Not and so so but so when I watch it though, when I, when you watch it the second, when you watch it the first time, sure, she becomes more kind of. Um, I guess problematic in terms of she becomes more the way that women um, have traditionally been written in movies that aren't great, you know, after she, at least the way she's acting. But the, the second time you see it and every time you see it after that, though, it, it's it's a liberation moment for her, even though she might act, quote unquote, weaker after it. Like you're, you're watching it as she's the first time she's a, an actual slave. Right. And then after and, and she's being lied to and drugged, essentially. But her memories being the drugs. Right. Um, and then after that, she's actually herself. It, I, I just want to just jump in quickly because I've, I've been kind of listening for a long time. When I think of Rachel, I do not think of Rachel before that. I don't think of Rachel at Tyrell headquarters. I think aesthetically of her, I guess, then, because that's like what everybody always posts because she was smoking more cigarettes and it looked cooler. And because she had these incredible shoulder pads and it was, a, a you know, it was an aesthetically really striking image. But that's not Rachel. That's, I mean, it's actually literally not Rachel. That's Tyrell's niece in, a, in, a, in an adult female body. That's not Rachel. Rachel is who we see born halfway through the movie, to, to me at least. 
So, um, and, and the first iteration of Rachel has literally no power over me at all as a character, um, as a piece of iconography. I see her as, um, uh, as, as something super problematic and it's uncomfortable watching her. Like I, I have a really hard time watching some of those early scenes when she's interacting with Deckard because her, the power quote unquote that she's wielding isn't hers. The power is somebody else's and she's just a vessel for it. Um, and I can't watch it without seeing that. You know, I, I don't, I, I see it, I see it as such a fabrication. Uh, the, to me, the power that she comes into and the reason why she has this incredible redemptive arc, and, and Jamie, I know you agree in some ways on this, is the power that transmogrifies into the birth of her child and brings her into the world of 2049 when she becomes more than anything, right? She starts off as a lie, she becomes a truth, and then she becomes everything, right? Um, but before there was everything, there was truth. And before there was truth, there was a lie. And that that what you have to work through every time you see these two movies now back to back is that progression, which I think is absolutely extraordinary. And I think that's one of the reasons why we all I mean, even though we might disagree on the verisimilitude of the Rachel 2.0 scene, I had to sneak the verisimilitude in. I had to put it um, in there. <laughs> and a, a quick a quick listener shout out to you on this. As, just as I'm mentioning it, um, Blake Wilson wrote that he wept when her simulacrum um, or a simulacrum of a simulacrum appeared in 2049. Um, I, I, I know I speak for all of us when I say we all did as well. I, I will never, I will never forget that moment until I'm dead. And if that means that that's part of my checklist that I'm reminding myself of who <laughs> I am with, then fuck it. I'll take it. Like that is part of my internal memory scape. That is an important memory for me that I choose to, I, and I do choose to remember that, you know, uh, like I, I choose to remember the entirety of watching 2049 for the first time because it was probably the most important film going experience I've ever had in my life. Um, but that scene in particular was the one that I will never get over. I will never get over that moment. And it's because it was the apotheosis of that character. It was like this moment where actually, no, sorry, it was not, it was the anti-apotheosis. It was, she had become everything, like I said, and then we saw her as a lie one more, one last time. We saw that fucking lie again. We saw her being wielded by men. We saw her being used by a proto Tyrell exactly as a, as an agent of doom in the guise of a beautiful woman who could be wielded as a tool by powerful men who could do whatever they wanted with no accountability. And we see that lie shot in the head. And that is so fucking tragic because it reminds us that we bought into that fucking lie too and that we lived with that lie. <laughs> and that every time we see that image, it's true. We saw her as something that she wasn't and we and we internalized her as something that she wasn't. I agree and with after everything seeing that you're saying. Grow, My only... I'm not done yet. Okay. I'm not done yet. And after seeing her grow and transform uh, one and more seeing thing. her story become more and more um, grand, like we, that lie is still in there for us. And we're always seeing things with that little prison that we'll never quite get over. Uh, and I think that when it's brought back again, uh, it's a moment that is like shatteringly powerful because it reminds us a lot of ourselves and the ways that we watch these movies as well. Jamie, go ahead. Wait, how cool is it that love is the one who shoots that lie in the head? Yeah. Love does it. Oh, I'm done. What now? <laughs> also, can I just say one thing really quick, Jamie? I know you want no. to speak, but no, I just want to say. So, what I'm seeing you say, Patrick, and you brought this up before, the phoenix. We see her as a phoenix, this live a phoenix in the beginning that's being wielded by powerful men. She is burnt down by Deckard, and the the things that I'm describing as beautiful when she chooses, when she starts making these little choices that are her, that are the true Rachel, like you said, Patrick. That's the little tiny baby phoenix kind of emerging from the ashes and taking its first steps. And then 
the child, her child, her and Deckard's child is that the true Phoenix again that has risen from the ashes. But what we think might be that true Phoenix is that lie again. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So there, Phoenix, full circle. <laughs> totally. Uh, I think I, what you were saying, ahead, Patrick, it, it it even ties back to the point you were making earlier about self-image and the stories we tell ourselves. It's like how thin those lies are. If you are if you are lying to yourself, I think we've all maybe unfortunately done that to uh, in our lives. It's like once those are exposed to you and one like once they fall apart, you are ash. You know, it's like her her fall that uh you know from from power if you want to put it that way like Jamie was saying it's kind of like i feel like it's indicative of people like if you if someone came up to you and proved that you are not who you think you are and now you need to figure it out uh i th- i think that would kind of level anyone so it it rings true i think i agree and that's why i think oh Jamie go ahead yeah. you no know, i was just going to say i agree with all that what you guys are saying my what i loved about the Rachel we met was her confidence what gave her her confidence was the lie. Absolutely agreed. But she had confidence. And and the dismantling of that lie dismantled her confidence. That's what I miss. That's the loss that I see. I loved the Rachel with confidence. I loved the Rachel who was not intimidated by Deckard. I'm not as... The Rachel that's intimidated by Deckard and bullied by Deckard, even though it ends up well at the end, that's the problem that I have. I loved her confidence. And oftentimes, even, you know, I've, you know, I was fired from my job over a year ago and that took away a lot of my confidence. So you have to rebuild what that is. Totally. It's something that we have to go through as people. Um, that's not my contention. My contention isn't what made her, uh, the lies that made her, the men that made her totally agreed. I love the confidence. She had confidence. She had a sense of, of, of uh, purpose. And even though that purpose wasn't true, she knew she could rely on that. And it was stolen from her. Even if it wasn't true, it was taken from her. And it wasn't just the job and working at Tyrell and all those things. It was who she was at her very core. It was her mother, her childhood, all of those things <sighs> vanished. I was going to ask, do you think, do you think that some of that confidence was like a uh, status based, you know, or like, her station, like she was more working comfortable? For, she was working for the biggest, probably, uh, corporation on earth at that point. Um, but she lost all of that. And I mourn that loss of her confidence. And uh, I would, that's the Rachel that I miss. No, and it has nothing to do with any of the stuff that you guys said. Fair enough. But it, I, I get, but it's just funny because I hear you saying saying this, she lost her confidence. She lost her status. Those weren't hers. I, I, I can't watch it and but lie you're, to myself. You're, misinterpreting, you're misinterpreting what I'm saying. I'm not saying that those were hers. I'm not saying that any of then those things... Then don't call it that. It's not her confidence. No, 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 no. Call no, it what but, it is. It's Tyrell's confidence that he's implanted in her. It's whatever, Tyrell's decisions that he made for her. But She's way, not acting no, out of agency. I, I disagree. I disagree. What I think is happening is whatever it is that's pushed her to the point when she first meets Deckard and the way she walks out on the on the in the room and with the light and all that and she's kind of looking at him and she's you know giving him the up and down that's her and maybe everything that's created and informed that is not true her response to that as rachel herself is her that is what's you know you could you know and we we all are like that 
um, your your confidence as a father, your confidence as a mother, or confidence as, as brothers or, or, or sons or whatever, if one of those things was taken away, it would affect our confidence. Even if those things were a lie, it still breaks down part of who we are. And maybe that's necessary. Maybe that isn't. And part of why I love Zora is because Zora is so fucking confident. Zora is so herself. And she is not intimidated by Deckard. In some ways, she's the Rachel. She's she's a little bit like Rachel. You, she's sort of verbally putting... Deckard in his place. He's scared to be there with her. He's a little bit terrified mm-hmm. of her. And Rachel had some of that same intimidation. And I liked that about her. And I'm not saying what led up to that was right or good or true. I'm not saying it. I'm just saying I liked Rachel with confidence. Maybe, certainly, maybe, she, and I don't want her to be that Rachel. I don't want her to live in that lie. I don't want her to. But to see her crash and burn from that is a really difficult thing to to watch. Even if we, it's like saying, say you meet someone and I don't know, and they're telling you about certain things and maybe they don't have all the information true, but they're they're emboldened and they're they're confident. And then you just, just destroy it because you have knowledge that certain things that they're saying isn't true. Like, for instance, when I was a kid, somebody told me I was adopted and my brother's adopted. But I, and I went to my mom and she was like, I was like, Mom, am I adopted? And she's like, who told you that? And I told her who told me that. But in that moment, my world was burning because and it didn't matter if it was true or not. You know, you know she's she's human. And there's ways that you go about that. There's a way that probably Tyrell and Deckard could have gone about that and informing her of her truth or the lie behind her truth or whatever, or the lie behind her confidence that wouldn't have had such an effect on her. If that makes any sense. Like Patrick, do the past versions of you that like, that you might, uh, that might be, you know, dead and buried now compared to who you are now as a, as a grown person. Like we do go through iterations of ourselves, don't we? Sure. We, we have, I mean, we're always molting and shedding our past selves, but our past selves also weren't weaponized by a powerful corporation to lie to people. I, I mean, I, 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 she, she, she's used as a, as a, as a, as a tool. And, and, and so I can't yeah. watch that confidence and not be bothered by the fact that it's not only, it's, cause here's the thing, Jamie, if you had been adopted, right, which you weren't, but, but, but if you had found out that you were adopted, it would not have been as a weapon to get something from other people, right? So your whole previous life to that point might have been a lie in that it was a construct in some ways, but it wasn't a weaponized construct with intent. But in the moment when it was told to me, it was used as a weapon against me as a child. Sure, but that's a separate, that's a separate conversation. No, but but it's got this, I I know, but I mean, you're- you're, Oh, you mean somebody weaponized it to bother you? Yes, like that was, even if that was true, the way in which you go about, if it was true about me, the way my parents would have discussed that with me would have been, hey, it would have been in a in a very so I don't leave that room feeling like my world's a lie. Rachel just mm-hmm. experienced all of that from these uncaring, unfeeling men that just tore the, her world the fuck apart and didn't give one shit. That's what I have a problem with. Oh sure, and you should have a problem with that. It's supposed to be difficult. Totally. Yeah. I think everybody has a problem with that. Deckard. You know those files on me? The incept date. The longevity. Those things. 
You saw them? They're classified. But you're a policeman. I didn't look at them. You know that Voight comp test of yours? Did you ever take that test yourself? It's interesting because there's really two characters in the same movie, and they're both really, um, you know, you get a, a really strong impression of both of them. But but they but because they inform each other so much, and you the, the second time you watch the movie, you can't see it completely devoid of that. I think. I guess just just to because we I think we should move on from this because we got to wrap pretty soon. I, there was something I wanted to say a little while ago that you guys can uh, react to or not, which is which is related to this in some ways, which is that when she comes back in 2049, I think the reason why that was so powerful for us wasn't because of nostalgia or something. And it wasn't because of the stakes for Deckard and knowing the dramatic stakes that his character was going through expositionally at that point in the storytelling. The reason is because at least, and I'll speak personally, maybe this doesn't apply to everybody else, but I chose to lie to myself again. I chose to think for that one moment, to feel in that one moment, uh, and I really needed a moment. Like after, after I kind of realized what I was feeling, I controlled myself again, but I wanted it to work. For this one second, I wanted it to work again. And I, that means that I chose internally to want her to be a fucking weaponized artifice again. I wanted this slave Rachel that was created, even knowing why she was created, I wanted them to be together again for that one moment. And it wasn't even the actual Rachel, right? And I don't even mean that in terms of a simulacra. I mean it in terms of we're seeing the pre-transformation Rachel again. We're seeing her as a slave again. And I, for whatever reason, internally, wanted it for that one flicker of time to work. And that says a lot about me, and I think I'm not alone in feeling that way, that feeling that flicker of hope for a second, right? Um, and then, of course, you get your bearings again, and you realize that there's all these things that are wrong about it, and you're left with this moment in this film that's a miracle, just as 2019 is a miracle, where you've had a flicker of something deep within yourself that you weren't ready to think about, I think. Which, that's, shows, that's... which shows how great the storytelling and the filmmaking in this case, it is in 2049, because that's what Deckard's feeling. That's what the fuck you're supposed to feel. You're supposed to have this image of the sky opening up. Again, I've described this before, of it's not just this pre-destruction, pre-internal destruction, Rachel. It's like Rachel at age 20, something that Deckard hasn't seen in front of him in 35, however many years, you know, and I've always said, imagine that parallel in your life. Imagine this person that you were in love with and in a way completely transformed your life who you either watched die or knew that had died, come back into your life 30, 35 years later, looking exactly how she does now. If that was Micah for you, for example, Patrick, you know, I mean, how mind shattering would that be? And how much does that fuck with your brain? I mean, that's why that scene is so impressive, because of course you want to believe it because, you know, Deckard wants to believe it. That's like true love kind of like walking back right in front of him. I mean, who in their right mind could turn that down? Right. But that's what I love about it. It's like a pure 
that that's why we love sci-fi because it allows us to engage with those questions in like an actual quote unquote real life scenario. Like that's something that could only happen in a dream or a sci-fi movie. So like in, and again, good sci-fi, it's causing the audience to question, what would I do in that situation? I have a long lost love, you know, maybe, you know, be especially, I'm sure like potentially traumatic for someone who lost someone at a young age, like, a you know, a partner. And then it's like, really like, this is like the devil. This is like someone out of the Bible tempting you, you know, like Satan tempting you with like the, the sweetest fruit or whatever. And I'm really glad we brought it to 2049. Cause I have a question for all he is, um, purely just a, like as a movie going as a spectator, as a, someone watching the movies, I believe it comes right before the scene where Rachel actually walks out when Wallace is giving this monologue and he's just kind of doing this kind of odd, almost fan theory conjecture stuff of like, maybe you and Rachel were both uh, meant to be, and this was all uh, preordained, and um, and and da da da. I think maybe you, not. you were built for each other. I, I believe You're, is what he says. Thank you. Like, it, my question is purely not like, do you believe it? Was it this that? I'm not getting into that. Purely just like, how did that? play for you guys did that feel like like um a, a little too on the nose too fan servicey or did it inspire you and you're like oh yeah yeah you know talk more jamie i can go for well, already. great sci-fi asks great questions and that's just a great question that wallace asked so we live in the realm of certainly in the Blade Runner films, everything and anything is possible. Could Deckard be a replicant? Absolutely. Is he? We don't know. So he just furthered that question. Maybe all of this was a lie. He was essentially echoing the question Rachel asked in the first film. Have you taken that test yourself? That's what Wallace was essentially saying. I do want to finish that one point. I was uh, something that you said, though, Patrick, about that one scene, though. I think what's powerful about that scene isn't that the lie was recreated, is that that's when Deckard first fell in love with Rachel. That's when he first met her. That's why that scene's powerful. Not because she's a lie, because that's who she met. That's how he met her. To me, that's why it's important. That's why the scene in 2049 is so important, is because you're meeting the love of your life the way you met her the first time. And she's exactly the same. That's why that scene. And you see the love. You see it all over him. He still loves her. He's in love with her. And does he accept her or does he not? And he doesn't. Um. Well, for me, um, during that monologue, that whole thing, uh, I just, I just think of, I like to watch Deckard's wheels turning in that scene, and um, I really like, I, I just like him processing it, and and to me, um, I mean, I, I believe that Wallace is toying with him in this moment, kind of kind of grooming him for the next moment, which is the big reveal of quote unquote Rachel 2.0. And um, going back to what we were talking about of how like impactful that was for her to just step out of the shadows that way, looking almost exactly the same. And like we all said, like a great sci-fi makes your brain start spinning and you start being like, why am I feeling these feelings? And I don't know how to name them yet. And um, like, I, I, if I were in Deckard's situation, uh, I think, let me just say that I think that it's, it's the most powerful part of that scene is for when he, is when he just says her eyes were green, right? Green. I, I get like second guess myself for a second. Anyway, he, 
he has every right to accept this Rachel because like you said, Jamie, this is the Rachel that he fell in love with. This is her. She's back. He knows that she's gone. He lost her. He already had to mourn her. He probably still is mourning her. So when he sees her walking towards him, I don't think any of us would have blamed him for, for grabbing her and hugging her and, and, you know, like accepting her back into his life. But how powerful is it? And it just like punches me in the heart when he says her eyes were green. Yeah, I, I totally. I, I think for, there's something in that moment. And Madge, I'm, I'm really thank you for opening the floor up for this because I think that's an important moment um, from a like a narrative standpoint, but also an emotional standpoint. And this is kind of an elliptical way of getting to it. But um, I think that uh, there's something going on there that relates to something that I mentioned what feels like five hours ago, but it was I think 45 minutes ago, about how a lot of us kind of sense something uh, before it actually happens when it's a, a cataclysm or when it's a big deal. And I think as an audience, that moment when, when, uh, when, uh, oh my God, not Tyrell, when Wallace, uh, Wallace is talking to, to Deckard is that moment for all of us in the audience. I remember very distinctly the first time I saw the movie, as soon as he started talking about that, I was like, holy shit, we're going to see Rachel again. I was like, oh my God, it's happening. Right. Even though, even though there was no indication that that was what was coming necessarily. Yeah, I didn't right? know. I didn't know. The, the first time you see it, you don't know that's coming, but you start feeling it intuitively. Your brain starts making these connections. You and know it's, something is going to happen. And part of that's, Jamie, exactly what you said about how he's basically echoing what Rachel said to, to Deckard when she met him, right? He, like, it's very... Uh, I and mean, Wallace has the recordings and the archives of that interaction, and he's playing with that. He's referencing it for Deckard, and Deckard is, is experiencing a harbinger of what's about to happen. And because we know the first film so well, we are as well. And so I think that's part of putting us in Deckard's headspace, too, as, as an audience. And that's part of why I think that what happens next plays on so many levels for us, because we start losing sight of where we end and where Deckard begins, I think. In terms of the fan theory stuff and the Decker rep stuff, I, I, I was not um, thrown off by it, but I was shocked for a moment because it was, it was obviously an explicit um, commentary by the filmmakers on this thing that was a you know, a fan theory that people were talking about and that was, has become kind of part of fandom lore and that has been referenced in interviews and things like that. But of course, in the first film, even in the, even in the cut that we have now, like it's not ever explicitly thrown out there about, you know, if, if Deckard is confused about that, although there's obviously a lot of allusions to it. Right. Um, and seeing it made explicit in that moment was super intense for me. And it opened up this whole kind of feeling of like, Oh my God, anything can happen now. Like we are entering uncharted waters. And also because lastly, for 2049 up until that point, we had still been getting so many mixed signals about it, right? Like why he was still alive, where he had gone, why he had aged so much, what all these other, how he survived in this irradiated environment, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so we're already starting to think like, what is actually going on here? And then we're thrown this zinger in the script and it makes us even more confused about what's real and what's not real and what we believe in. And then, of course, the gates are just completely um, cracked open. And it's just an, it's an extraordinary moment. And I'm glad we've you know, finished that we're finishing this two part series on Rachel with 2049, because I, I really do feel like that's where she that's where she actually rose from uh, the ashes of, of this of the world of Blade Runner, not only her own character, but as a as a legend, you know. And, and what you just mentioned about being confused about reality and really not knowing which way is up or down, how much more Phil Dickian of a concept is there? I mean, he didn't get to write the 2049 story, and even the story that he wrote that became Blade Runner was very different. And Rachel Rosen's character was very different from Rachel, you know, quote unquote Tyrell, so to speak. Um, but I think that's so appropriate because 
Phil uh, PKD does that a lot in his books where he will build a world and build a reality and then crush that reality. And all of a sudden you have no idea what the hell is going on. You know, that happens a lot. There's the, the famous moment that we've talked about in androids about the fake police station. And the, I mean, it's just so how appropriate, you know, that's such a perfect use of that psychological weapon that was Rachel um, against Deckard. I mean, it's just, yeah. Phenomenal. And a well, quick shout-out to The Man of the High Castle, which which has, like, one of the most I, extraordinary That's exactly what I was thinking of. I haven't seen that yet. i got to watch it. You, no, the, the book. Like, you, you can oh. you can never read that book the second time the same way again because all, every, you question absolutely no everything. But, yeah, no no spoilers at all. Um, a couple more comments, and then, and then we should we should. Well, anecdotally, I, 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 and this is something that I think about, and we can move on from this because I know we need to close. Because we're going to do it. It's going to be 40 minutes. I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, the idea, of course, that they brought that Rachel from 2049 back with the bones of the original Rachel, and I've I've always been of the speculating that what if she had all of the memories of that Rachel? So for all intents and purposes, oh, yeah, we've that, talked about that was Rachel with every memory, with giving birth. She might look younger, she might look the same. She's given birth to a child. She loves Deckard. That's all she knows, and they killed her again. Totally. That's heartbreaking. That's a gut punch. Uh, Dan, Matt, Phil how Dickian, about you? How did it? I, I just want to say, Phil, Phil Dickian is easily my new favorite adjective, and it's probably going to be. <laughs> I didn't invent new... it. I did not invent it. It is. It is used. <laughs> what were you going to say, Patrick? I was just going to say, how did it play for you that moment? The the Wallace. Uh, well, specifically, what Wallace? What Wallace says? Yeah. Um. I remember last time I was watching it, I had forgotten kind of about that that piece of of dialogue, and I was like, "Wow, they're really they're really addressing it." And I was like, "It it took me out the teeniest bit, but I was like, I was like, this isn't ruinous in any way, you know? It's like, sure, like if we if we're gonna get into it, which we were, which we're not, um, I think it's holy. Uh, second use of the word holy. Um, it, it's totally, it's far less interesting." to me if it was all uh you know if they were made for each other but it's it, it it's fun to chew on so like I, I am glad it's in the film because it's engaging um you know by that point in the movie it's a long film and you, you know you have so many ideas swimming in your head especially if you're a fan of the original one so like it, you know it, it's not a terrible thing to throw a bone to the fans and stuff can um, i say that i so agree please. with that like i so agree that it it's less interesting that they were quote unquote oh, made yeah. for each other Thank you. <laughs> right. And and how cool was it that the writers and Villeneuve made specific decisions to keep that part of the story ambiguous, but bring it to the forefront and force you to question it yet again? I mean, what a what a brilliant move, you know, without without forcing an answer. They impress the question upon you again in a different way with familiar characters. And it's just like rocks your world again you know i mean it's so it's really incredible and it's right at the moment narratively where they do that to everybody right like it's it's it, they're about to tear for a moment the fabric of, of reality and they started by tearing the fabric of reality between where the film ends and the fandom begins right by by opening up this whole line of inquiry that has survived separate from the movie right over the last decades right maybe that's pay. why that's why it almost like uh it, it that maybe that's why it's slightly I won't say graded on me, but why it maybe stuck out is because even in 2049, all of the ambiguities 
our show don't tell and that one was a mm-hmm. bit tell don't show and that's why um j- just since we're wrapping uh just want to get this in before you guys do the real wrap um i mentioned way earlier about how um rachel's her arc and all that uh was kind of like this this really profound kernel of truth that made its way through every uh stage of making the Blade Runner, which is like insane when you get into the making of it, you're like, oh my god, there were all these, there were several scripts, there's all these different edits of the film, there's all these alternate takes, and like in the editing room, you couldn't change anything. But that is what, um, is what, uh, works so well and continues to work. And I went to Dangerous Days, the Hampton Fancher script from 1980, and it ends with them driving away with the whole cut ending scene with the Kubrick footage and it has voiceover from Decker that I want to read just real quick. It said, let's see Decker's voiceover. She said the great advantage of being alive was to have a choice and she chose. And a part of me almost was almost glad not because she was gone, but because this way they could never touch her. As for Tyrell, he was murdered, but he wasn't dead for a long time. I wanted to kill him, but what was the point? There were too many Tyrells, but only one Rachel. Maybe real and unreal could never be separated. The secret never found. But I got as close with her as I'd ever come to it. She'd stay with me a long time. I guess we made each other real. And that's how it ends. God, it's so much better than what they use. Good wow. God. Hampton <laughs> Fancher. That man is a genius. I'm like... So, so that, and, that she made me real is exactly how I view Deckard and Rachel. Like, that's it. That's just what it is to yeah. me. And like, is she, um, it's like she, uh, you know, he even says, uh, she said the great advantage of being alive was to have a choice and she chose. And like, she does, of course, you know, you could, someone can argue with me that other people in the movies in, in Blade Runner make choices, but it seems like even Roy and, and Deckard, you know, our other two like main poles of the film are acting out of desperation or like really they're, fe- they're acting because they feel they have no other choice, but Rachel decidedly makes her own choice. And that's kind of, and you know, Hampton Fancher said it two years before the film would even be released before, you know, his script would get rewritten. So it, it, it's clear why it's so uh, potent. She chooses to live totally. And, and then living becomes real. Um, this is I, I if it's okay I we have I want to read a, a listener comment and then we have a couple of things we'll get to so uh, if, if if that's all right I want to read a quick comment from our, our dear friend Mike Andrews who wrote in he said Rachel used to feel like a secondary character when I first saw Blade Runner but has since evolved in my eyes as the main one alongside Roy her situation is heartbreaking whenever I see the scene when she is told her life is a lie I can feel her breaking it's among the most emotional scenes in the film. She seems to represent that feeling we all get when our expectations of reality are dashed. Her presence in 2049 only amplifies her importance to the world, and what a great world that is. Thank you, Mike, for that. Um, we're going to play one listener call-in, and then we have a very special treat for you guys, which I will let Dan um, kick off. Hi, my name is Coley White, and uh, I live in the uh, center of the United States uh, of a beautiful Iowa. Um, your question about Rachel is the most intriguing, and I would I, I want to say Rachel uh, is the most 
and though I would push for uh, J.F. Sebastian, Rachel is the crux of the movie. She is the caterpillar. Uh, everybody is still the same in the movie. Uh, Deckard will always be a cop. Uh, 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 Pris uh, and Zora uh, w- w- will always be themselves. They know who they are. Uh, Ray, uh, uh, Bryant will always, you know, be an elder cop. Rachel is the one who changes the most in the movie. Uh, she truly is Tyrell's niece is trying to find herself in this world. Um, and opens, gets handed this book with all this information uh, changing her life. Um, uh, her life changes uh, the most. And uh, I'll, I'll leave you with um, uh, R- Rachel is an emotion uh, because, uh, and not a machine anymore, because once a machine shed tears, it's no longer a machine. Um, and she's the key to the film. Um, uh, adore the work by uh, Sean Young, bringing her to life. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Uh, we'll see you in Iowa. Yeah, so um, a lot of you guys know Carla Rosa. She was at our event. She came to visit us in uh, November 2019. Um, first off, I'd like to thank her for all her help with that event because she was pivotal. If you were there, the ramen was her idea. The bonsai was her idea. She's just had great, great um, aesthetic and philosophical connection to the film. Um, and she's an occasional contributor, and, and we love um, when she gives us her insight. And um, for a while, for this last, you know, several months, she was working on a project that she started on her own. And again, you can interact with her online. She's all over the groups and and very happy to talk with you guys. But she was curious about it started, I think, if I can speak for her a little bit, since we've talked about it a lot. It started as just a seed of um, her thinking more about Rachel's background and her life. And she asked herself simply, I wonder what Rachel's apartment looked like. And so it started as a quest to kind of even just physically kind of consider where did Rachel live, you know, and and, and Decker calls her and he calls her her phone in her apartment. But then it expanded and she started thinking about <clears throat> sort of what life Rachel had been given by Tyrell. She had a spinner at one point. There was even like a model and a mock-up of it. So some of these ideas are concrete in sort of earlier versions of the script. And so um, Carla, over several months, put in a lot of hard work to write an essay that she called Home um, about who Rachel might have been, like like who Rachel was behind the scenes, the things that we don't directly see in the movie, but we have anecdotal evidence for. And I know she's, I know, um, I believe Paul Salmon's read her essay. I know she sent it to Sean Young and had a conversation with her. I'm not 100% sure yet if Sean Young actually read her essay. I hope she does. Um, It's really beautiful. And of course, because Carla has such a beautiful voice and and accent, you guys know she played a role in our uh, audio drama Gethsemane. We decided that who better to read her essay than Carla herself. So we're going to leave you guys with um, her reading of her, uh, or a condensed version of her reading of uh, the Rachel essay that she calls home. This is a piece of a wider reflection on the concept of home in Blade Runner. I always wondered about the possibility that Rachel had her own house, probably a separate apartment 
located in the upper levels of Tyrell's corporation, which were large enough to gather multiple sectors, private and corporate. What do we know about Rachel? We know that she worked as Tyrell's secretary, but do we really know where she lived? How was her daily routine? Have you ever imagined her bedroom, her own closet, her own photographs on the wall? How could this be relevant to the story? Indulge me. Rachel appears to us like a beautiful painting. She's elegant. She's confident. She's the perfect corporate businesswoman. Tyrell tells Deckard that Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. But in fact, she became far more than an experiment in the story. She became the story. Tyrell wanted her to be more human than human, and to do so, she would not only have memory implants of a past, but also a real present, providing her an emotional passion. A real house, a wealthy wardrobe, an elite job, maybe a spinner, and, and ultimately a lover. What I find fascinating with this character is this peculiar philosophical question that oscillates between being a slave and being free to decide her destiny. And still, when I think about Rachel, she has this magical aura that flies beyond all that. She's like the essence of the movie. I can imagine her apartment being in one of the upper levels of the pyramid, having hidden cameras and other devices. In my opinion, There were two major reasons for the creation of a Rachel apartment. One was that the genetic bioengineers who created her must have needed to monitor her health and her, and her psychological condition being close enough to act in case of an emergency. And the other reason was that they had to do this being distant enough so she would feel independent and believed she was living the life they built for her. Rachel's routines at home would be a sort of baseline, a sophisticated VK test studying her emotional development. She didn't have a security failsafe like the four-year lifespan of sixes, and Tyrell must have too many secrets he would want to hide from her, including the fact that she was an XS7. So, what better way to do this than having her at bay, but close enough to control her so he could work on his projects? Letting her feel independent, creating another emotional pillow, the feeling that she had her own place, her own home. This would validate her personal story, and at the same time, it would help studying the prototype. Now let's talk about clues and facts provided in the movie. Outside the snake pit bar, Deckard calls Rachel on the vid phone. I will say it again, he calls Rachel. He didn't call Tyrell Corporation. He used the number on the back of the photo she had given him at his apartment, which also had an address. Anyway, my point is that Deckard used Rachel's number to call her. He dials 555-7583 and when she answers, we can see her on the screen and she is indoors. Let me read you Hampton Fancher's 1980 script 
Deckard is on the edge of the couch with the phone on his knees, the card with Rachel's number in his lap and having no luck. Rachel's voice, sorry, I'm not in at the moment, but if you leave your name and number, I'll return your call as soon as I can. Another fascinating clue is the conceptual existence of a Rachel Spinner model. There is an Alfa Romeo Spinner passing by while Deckard and Gav are flying on their way to the Tyrell building. Could it be Rachel's? An ERTL's miniature of that same Alfa Romeo Spinner was manufactured and it was called officially Rachel Spinner. This is a fact. I read an interesting comment in Fields of Calanta page saying, by the way, Rachel owning her own spinner may explain why she waited for Deckard in the elevator of his apartment building instead of its lobby. She arrived by spinner on the roof and waited in the elevator because she didn't know if he would arrive in the lobby or in the roof. In one of Hampton Fancher David People's early scripts, 1981, after Decker notices that Rachel left his apartment, we can read, Decker walks over the window and stares out. A spinner flashes by smearing light on his face. Could it be Rachel's? In 2049, there is an intriguing, an intriguing line in one of the final scenes inside the spinner where Deckard asks Love where they are going, to which she replies, home. Thirty years later, replicants still deal with the urge of having a place where they belong. Could it mean a place to raise a family? As with all things in the future, you must discover the answer for yourself. So... Thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been a really fantastic year. Thanks, everybody, for being on. Micah, Madge, uh, it's been a year that we will never forget and we'll be talking about for years to come. See you guys in 2020. Thanks for having me. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.